In an environment of health disparities amplified by a national pandemic, racial injustice, Providence is committed to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in our communities, workplaces, schools, and more. What happens now? How do we cope? What's the impact on our overall health and mental wellness? The Culture of Health will focus on what the future of healthcare looks like in today's changing culture. Together, we will discuss how we turn the conversation of culture and healthcare into lasting and meaningful action. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culture of Health. I'm your host, Beverly Murray, and here with me today is Kenya Beckman, Regional Chief Philanthropy Officer for Southern California. Today, we will be discussing health equity and how health disparities affect women, especially women of color in today's society and workplace. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our guest, Kenya Beckman. Hi, Beverly. It's so good to be with you, uh, especially on today. We're filming on International Women's Day, so it's great to be with one of my favorite women. Yay! And you, of course, are one of my favorite women. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your position at Providence to start? Okay, sure. So, um, again, name is Kenya, and I've been with Providence just over a year and a half. My responsibility is leading philanthropy in Southern California. We have eight foundations that support our ministries here from the high desert all the way down to Mission Viejo. And I get the pleasure of working alongside 100 plus caregivers who are connecting to the community to raise private support to enrich each of our ministries. Um, before that, I was at Hoke Hospital for 13 years um, as executive vice president leading the foundation there. And then prior to that, did fundraising and higher education. Um, from Oklahoma City, which I'm super proud of, went to school back east and in the Midwest before moving out here. My husband's a professor at UC Irvine. We have three kiddos, uh, 18, 14, and 13. So yeah, it's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a lot going on. Yeah. Those, teen that those teenage years in the house are serious ones. Yeah. How about if we get a little bit more information about your journey to executive leadership. Like, how do you balance all these roles? You know, the mother of three children, daughter, executive, wife. Yep, all of it. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the day. You know, people ask me now, like, how are you doing? And I say, I'm vertical. And that is the bar, you know, that's the new bar. And I'm comfortable with that. So, um, you know, I was raised in either a pulpit or a nonprofit boardroom. So everyone in my family either did direct service, nonprofit work. My dad started an agency that did gang intervention, substance abuse treatment and, and um, prevention, all of those direct service agency things. And then on my mom's side, it was, you know, lots of clergy. So, you know, Protestant clergy um, and like the Church of God in Christ um, and Disciples of Christ and all of those things. So my whole value proposition about life is like what kind of difference are you making and i never really you know was connected to for profit so i literally didn't even understand that as how you orient your life right and so throughout my um journey to where i am now i've just looked for those opportunities where can i make the biggest difference how can i bring people together to accelerate change um i like working in environments where 
maybe other folks haven't had as much and I can make a difference there. That's something that is definitely a passion for me. Um, and so I would say kind of coming to philanthropy, philanthropy combines the pace of business life, which I like, with the heart of making a difference in the community. And so now, you know, I find myself um, one of probably three um, black women leading, if that, leading um, philanthropic efforts of this size in the country. And it's such an honor to do that on behalf of Providence. Uh, it's just been a terrific journey. And in terms of balancing, you know, you'd have to ask my family how well I balance it. I don't, you know, it depends on the day. Um, I will say that after having that third kiddo, I think your whatever expectations you had really come down. And so you just focus on what's right in front of you. And I focus on relationships. My kids know they are deeply loved. Um, a question, a common question in our house is, what is it like to be so loved? And we ask them that as we're like hugging them all tight and then met at six feet down to my 13 year old, just spending that time makes up for the fact that I have not made a home cooked dinner in a very long time, <laughs> but they know they're loved. So that's about all I could do. <laughs> well, you, you take my heart with that. Cause you know, my favorite saying, my favorite thing for dinner is reservations. Yes. So there's not a lot of cooking going on, but yes, you're still eating. <laughs> and I wanted to follow up just a little bit on that. Um, we talk a lot about a resiliency. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that I talked about or had you talk about some how you have been resilient in terms of you being an executive, all the other things you have to do, and being a woman of color? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that I'm pretty transparent and vulnerable about it. I think there, and we'll talk about this later, there's such an emotional tax to being a woman in leadership and being a woman of color in leadership, in business, in America, in the world, to be honest, that that emotional tax and that emotional burden is so much to carry on its own that if you also layer on a desire or a need to hide it, um, it's just that much harder. And so I try to be transparent about where I'm at and not to make my burden someone else's burden, but just to be clear and transparent. Um, I think, you know, I connect with people I really trust outside of work and they fill my cup. I try to find ways to give back into the community more for me than for them you know, just to stay connected and to stay grounded. Um, but I talk about it. You know, I, I communicate with my husband. I communicate with my friends and families to say, today was really hard and here's why. Um, I read a lot, um, try to exercise, you know, do all the things that you know you should do. Um, but mostly it's just not trying to carry it all on my own. Great answers. I'm sitting here going, okay, you're supposed to exercise, but all of <laughs> All of the other things you talked about, I definitely can identify with, but I do need to exercise. Okay, so here we, we're going to talk about the subject at hand, yeah. but want to start with the definition, because sometimes I find it's very helpful to kind of set the foundation. So what is health equity? Right. And then maybe how is that different or is it different from health equality? Yeah. Well, I, it's a great question and I haven't, I'm not the one who's come up with really a smart answer to this, but so I'm going to steal it 
you know, shamelessly, right? So, but I think it's super smart. So health equality is everyone gets the same thing, right? Um, everyone, so I've, I saw a graphic where everyone is standing under an apple tree with apples all at the same level, okay? So everyone's under the same apple tree. Health equity is recognizing that some of the people standing under that tree are two feet shorter and farther away from the apples, right? And so you may need to put a box under them to get them closer to the apples. So to put it in a more simple way, health equity is making sure that everyone has what they need to achieve their best health. And that could look like something different for you than for me, than the person down the street. Whereas health equality is just kind of closing your eyes and saying, everybody gets a thermometer and, you know, and, and a roadmap for weight loss, regardless of what their weight is to start with, regardless of the way that they, the foods that are part of their culture, regardless, now everybody eats the same thing. And there you go. Health equity says, wait a minute, your diet, because of your culture consists of rice, beans, like hot, you know, certain things that you're, we're not, you shouldn't give up. So how health equity says, how can you still be healthy and achieve your best outcomes and not have the exact same thing as the person down the street or in another neighborhood? Yeah, you remind me, I hear people all the time saying, when the tide rises, it lifts all boats. And I always feel like jumping up saying, well, some of us don't have a boat, so we drown. Thank you. And somebody's in the yacht. It's like, everybody's saying, and every time I hear that, I wanted, actually, I heard it yesterday and I wanted to jump up and say, no, everybody doesn't have the same boat. <laughs> we can't all ride. Some of us have to so Thank you. You may be in a boat, but you spend half your day getting water out of the boat. <laughs> there you go. Now, once, now that we've kind of established, okay, health equity means we're going to try to meet people where they are and still provide them with great health services. Why is that topic important? Why is it important for us right. to put that in front of people? Right. Well, I mean, to put it just as simply as I can, people don't live as long when they're not healthy. Health determines so much. You cannot do much of anything if you don't feel well. And we can see from the data that um, people of color in this country have a shorter lifespan than white people. And that is for a whole host of reasons. But the reality is, and the data shows that you're less, that you're more likely to die five, 10 years sooner if you are a person of color. So what does that mean? That means as, as a, first on an individual basis, it means those are mothers, fathers, daughters, children who aren't with their families, right? From an economic perspective, those are earning years. That's generational wealth that is not captured for the next generation. From a social perspective, those are creators of business, of music, of art, of innovation, of engineering, of bridges, of all of the things that were robbed because they are not here, because they are not alive. And before they die, they're dealing with chronic illnesses such that they already aren't going to have the space and, again, that um, emotional and physical reservoir from which to create new things. And that's what people often don't realize is that there is a, a mental space one has to innovate when you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from, where you're going to sleep, 
Is your water clean? And are you, do you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? If you don't have all that to worry about, you can come up with all kinds of stuff. You can create holograms and, and whatever. You know, you can cure cancer. And so what you see when you look across the country, you see innovation and you see those leading companies and all the pocketed amongst the group of people who haven't had to deal with the lack of basic structural support. And so that's why health equity is so important is now we have to do very direct interventions to help level the playing field. I think what you said is so powerful because I like the way you break it down by, you know, socially, you know, your mother's not going to be there. Your father's not going to be there. And then I like the way you talk about it financially. And then I like the way you talk about why it ought to be important to businesses. Yep. Since it's International Women's Day, I want to ask specifically what women or what actions women can take to enhance health equity. Okay. Yeah, no, for sure. Women um, aren't just key to the health of their families, which I think none of us would be surprised by, right? That we also are the keys to the health of our children, often our parents. Um, so I think the burden or rather the responsibility for women is heavier and the stakes are higher. And so what I would say is first, be aware that these health inequities exist. Women, especially women of a certain generation, and I'll call out you know, some of my parents, my mom's generations, assume that every physician that they encounter has their you know, best interest at heart, you know, doesn't have any implicit bias, is doing every possible thing they can for them and they just follow right along. And sometimes the result, and, and sometimes it's not even generational. Sometimes, you know, there's there are language barriers that keep women from speaking up for themselves. There are, you know, tons of generational trust issues. And so women have to say, you know what, this doesn't feel right. I want to see someone else. We're often taught to not create awkward moments. And I would say one or two awkward moments is worth the health of you, the health of someone you love, the health of your unborn baby. So if someone, you know, and I've had cases like this, friends who a doctor will say, oh no, that isn't amniotic fluid you're leaking, that's urine. And you're telling like the one, you know, when someone's pregnant and you're telling the woman who actually knows probably what is coming out of her body and is trying to dismiss that, putting that baby at risk. So that woman who's facing that has two choices. She can walk out of there because she doesn't want to challenge that authority and then potentially risk the life of her baby and herself. Or she can say, you know what? I want to see someone else. I want to follow up. I need to call a condition, a code H, which in most hospitals means a whole care team is going to come and talk to you together. So women have to be willing to be uncomfortable and to call this out because it's not always going to be done for us. So you need to know it and you need to say it and you need to be okay being a little bit awkward for the health of your family. I think that's very important. I also want to follow that up with just a, just being resourceful right. and what that might mean for women in particular. Because sometimes I don't always get the feeling that we know all of the resources that are out there to help us. You know, I often hear people say, you know, they'll say something and I say, well, where'd you, where'd you hear that? And they'll yep. say, oh, I heard my friend said it. And I'm like, 
is that person a doctor or in there? And they're like, no, no, I heard, I hear a lot of things on the internet. And I, I try to say in a nice way, I don't think that's a good thing, but I often struggle because I want to be able to paste a resource and say, here, you know, that's not right. This is, you know, this is something that might help you. So I wonder if you have any words of wisdom around, you know, maybe we know something, but Mm -hmm. we just don't know how to get other people to, you know, to understand it. Like maybe my mom doesn't understand something. Are there are there places or resources where we can find information? There are. And so I think, you know, a couple things about that. The reason people believe what they see through Facebook and their friends is because they trust their friends. Right. And all of this kind of boils down to trust. It's like, whom do you trust? Do you trust a healthcare system that maybe repeatedly has let you down and let, you know, generations before you down? Or do you trust the person that you just saw down, you know, that you just had coffee with, even though that person has no medical expertise whatsoever. And so I think what we have to do is, first of all, talk to each other more and talk and hold these resources accountable and understand what's at stake when we follow bad advice. So I think we need to be willing to talk to each other and say, hey, I don't know about that. Let me take your question and kind of ferret it out. Anyone connected to a healthcare system, I think we have that responsibility to play that role for our friends, even if we're not direct blind caregivers. There are, there are resources like the California Black um, Women's Health Project, the California Black Health Network. They have terrific websites that connect to a lot of information. Um, same with our Latinx sisters and API and LGBTQ. Like there are nonprofits like that, and we need to just continue to share them with each other. Um, as well as, I mean, the CDC too, like if you're going to pick one thing, the CDC is pretty good um, and has link, has information in multiple languages as well. So that's a great first stop, first stop if nothing else.
is more, this next one is kind of personal. So if it's too personal, go, oh, Beverly, stop asking. <laughs> what uh, social inequities, if any, have impacted you personally in your journey to becoming an executive or healthcare executive? Right. You know, I will say that, and this isn't just because I'm on the Dash Providence Network. It's been a lot. My journey at Providence has been so good. So I'll, I'll put that there and I'll say, kind of reflect on my, my time up till now. Um, I, you know, I had someone say, you know, you will never lead a um, large foundation as a black woman with three kids, you know, and I've had people say some really, you know, wild stuff. I think the bigger issue is one that not just I face, but that every woman and every woman of color faces, which is that there's a built in automatic, difficult to disentangle sense of what leadership looks like in the United States. So when we talk about they have leadership qualities, and there's a lot of social science research to show this, generally, even people of color, any people, people in the United States see leaders as white men of a certain age. And so when we talk about leadership qualities, it's always those things associated with it. So when women are hired, when people of color are hired, there's an element of perceived risk. So is it, are we in a position as an organization to take a risk on that, on that you know, uh, black woman and see if she can do it? Or should we go with what we know will work, which is this white man who may or may not have the credentials, may or may not have the, um, the experience. And that is just, that is so hard to disentangle. And it's not just you know, me that says that. So if you look at Fortune 500 companies, there are as many female CEOs as there are CEOs named John. Okay. Let's just get our head around. Out of the 500, as many women of any name as there are men named John. Okay. Another one that kind of really, that kind of took me aback was, um, despite the fact that women make up 50.8% of the population in the United States, and 57% of the college graduates. Johns only make up 3.3% of those groups, and yet they are dominating the corporate boardrooms. Women make up 16% of board members among companies. I mean, it's just kind of shocking. Um, fewer Republican senators and fewer Democratic governors are women than men named John. Now, my dad's name's John, so I'm not here to hate on Johns, but I think it really does like highlight the fact that this is a problem. When we, until we start seeing leaders by what they bring to the job, by the attributes, the communication, the team building, um, we're going to have this problem. So I have definitely faced that. I also feel like, you know, black women in particular have to deal with that angry black woman trope that people like to throw around. If you disagree, um, or communicate too directly, that label can be um, attached to you in a way that makes it hard to be successful. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely something that I've carried, um, but it, I'm not alone in carrying it. The other thing that's interesting is that for women, our bodies and our presentation of physical self, we put a lot of percentage of energy into that. In general, I would say most men don't put nearly as much thought and concern about their physical representation. You know, the heels, the shirts, the hair, the makeup, all of those things, again, energy taken away 
from our ability to innovate and you know think big and lead it big ways. We're still doing it, but man, we're tired. <laughs> I was you made me think about her name is I think I hope I pronounce it correctly, the Sonda Brown Duckett, and she just become the CEO of Chase. Yeah. And she was the second CEO of an African woman of color, African American woman of color, um, in Fortune 500 companies in 2021. And I just thought, I mean, what? I was happy for her, but I was like, wow, that's yes. interesting. And I think the other thing that you said that just kind of my HR hat went on because I was talking to somebody the other day and I said to them, you know, they were talking to me about some experience that they'd had. And I said, well, you know, that's not really true for people of color. I said, people of color in my job experience have gotten jobs because they've done, you know, they, they're a proven entity, not because they have the potential to be successful. Oh, yeah. I said, that's not been my experience. Right. I'm usually going to be either overqualified for or I've already done the work before I get the opportunity. And I don't think that's true necessarily all the time for not for Caucasian or white people. And so the person I was talking to was a white woman and she thought about it and she was like, oh, wow, really? And I was like, yeah, the choice oh, okay. that you're talking about with me that you're struggling with wouldn't happen to me because I'm not going to get the opportunity because I might look like I'm going to do the work. I either have to have done it or I have to be a known entity oh, in yeah. order to move forward. And oh, I yeah. think that, but it took me a long time to believe that because mm -hmm. I'm actually, I, I'm saying this, but I'm actually doing some research because I don't like the word microaggressions. I really think it's a way of minimizing. And I want to talk about how it maximizes in terms of its impact on the people that you're saying it to. And so, you know. It's, it's truly, I mean, it, 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 you're absolutely right because it may be micro in that they didn't just call you the N-word, but it's macro in its effect. So for yeah. me, it's things like, you know, you don't look black or, oh, I never thought of you as, you know, things like that that diminish like half my <laughs> half my family. I have more black relatives than white relatives by far. And it's like, or, you know, just feeling the need to establish these bona fides. So for you, like your law degree and your education and like all the, like we have to put that out there. Whereas, you know, other folks can go to much less schools of note and it's fine. I have to lead with Ivy League this and Presbyterian this and I mean, all this stuff before you even get to the fact, can I do my job? And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's that. It's like spending, and then also feeling like I have some privilege that I will use to make things better and different. And so I have to decide on any given day, which Kenya is showing up, you know, you know, <laughs> what am, Amanda Seals, how black am I going to get today? <laughs> and that's, and that is a true thing. And that is, that's a lot of energy that my family doesn't get, yeah. that my health doesn't get. So you see how it's all connected. Uh -huh. Now tell me about some of the health disparities, because there are many, and I know that people out there 
may be dealing with them, but there may be some people who are unaware. And I think we need to know that there are some health disparities out there that impact women. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with some facts. So we're going to start with all women and say that for any woman going into a hospital complaining of chest pain, you are 13% less likely to get potentially life-saving thrombolytic treatment. So thrombolytics are what break open a clot buster. And so, and so you go in with chest pain. Women are more likely to be dismissed as having had that be stress or imaginary or whatever. And so studies have shown that 13, you're 13% less likely to get that. Let's look at um, even things like ACE inhibitors, aspirin, statins. Women are less likely to be prescribed those for their heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer of women. And yet we're finding that when we go in and talk to a physician, and this is a woman of any color, you're less likely to come out with the same treatment than, uh, than a man. Let's look at, you know, even like trials. Right now vaccines are big in the news and how vaccines come to be. Well, women, although now they're represented more in phase three trials, that's after all the formulation has been done. And it's, we've shown that women are 90% like, more likely to ex have extreme reactions to those drugs. We need more women in phase one trials where women are grossly underrepresented. So that's like just those things alone should make all of us pretty frustrated. Now, if we look at the intersectionality of women of color, it starts to get very real. So black women are less likely to get breast cancer and four times more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. The black infant mortality rate is twice that of other groups. Among our API, Asian Pacific Islander sisters, 76% greater likelihood of obesity, 70% greater at risk for type 2 diabetes. And if you have diabetes, you're 50% more likely if you come from an API community to develop end-stage kidney disease. All of that points to, it's not just the patient's activity. Actually, 80% of this is how they're receiving care. So the onus is on us, and about 20% of that is on the, is on the patient. 60% of Vietnamese women um, said that they got a pap smear in the last year, compared to 86% of the population, Wow. generally. That's a huge difference in terms of catching cervical cancer. Latinx women have the second lowest life expectancy of all groups. So again, we talked about people who are just not not in the social political world anymore. I mean, that's that is unconscionable. And American Indians have the lowest life expectancy of any group. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's just terrible. And then if you would say, okay, when I if I do go to a physician, am I going to see someone who looks like me? Probably not. Um, in 2015, only 0.7% of CEOs came from the API community. We're Asian Pacific Islander. 7% were African-Americans. I mean, both of those in terms of the population are way, way off. Um, and actually that 7% is African-Americans, Latinx, and Native Americans combined. So then if we were to say, okay, what about our transgender um, sisters? So, I mean, because of fear of discrimination, one in five transgendered people postpone healthcare visits in the last year. Think about that. I like need to go to the doctor, but are so afraid of being in an environment where they are not seeing who they truly are that they just don't go. And then if you look at people facing disabilities, 31% of people with disabilities report fair or poor health compared to 
percent of people without disabilities and are 400 percent more um, more likely to have type 2 diabetes and more likely to die by suicide like these are just a handful of things that all of us should be outraged about and should be working every day to change and i know that you've done some things with providence because i'm going to talk about the big pandemic that's out here now but i want to ask you you know what have you and your partner done related to COVID-19 and health equity? And then while you've been working in some of the underserved communities, what are some of the concerns that you're hearing about the COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, no, great question. So um, Providence committed $50 million to reducing health disparities um, last year in response to the murder of George Floyd and the moment to be able to say, what are we going to be about as an organization? So we work alongside our community health investment partners, but this is a separate pot of money, if you will, taken from the reserves, which I think is important. Jeremy Elkins and I represent Southern California in that work. And so the first thing we are charged with is looking at how these disparities are, are being um, revealed through COVID-19. So between the end of last year and through now, we've distributed about 80,000 COVID-related kits to communities throughout Southern California. And those kits included everything from masks and hand sanitizer to pulse oximeters and plastic sheeting to help make a barrier in crowded spaces to help prevent the spread. And those kits were distributed through our partners. So we didn't just go out and say, Providence is giving you all these things. We went to a network of up to 20 churches, black churches in Los Angeles, and they helped distribute them. We worked with programs like the Tiger Woods Foundation to distribute them. We worked with Latino Health Access. We worked with um, API nonprofits throughout the region to get those kits into the hands of folks who needed them most. We also funded community health workers. So data shows that community health workers are the best way to make an impact on health in communities at risk. And so again, we partnered with local nonprofits to fund community health workers to get these kits out and to communicate information about COVID-19. Up in the high desert, what became clear is that having banners that were multilingual and gave information, basic health information, was actually the way that they wanted to have that information shared with them. So we funded those. Um, we have connected our, our physicians of color with local partners like Cal State Dominguez Hills, and um, FAME, first, um, uh, AME, and other, and other churches to do webinars. So to say specifically in Spanish and in English from, um, from physicians and caregivers of color, here's the vaccine. Here's what, you know, here, validating the concerns, walking through the science. And that's, to your point, what we've seen. Although there was a hesitancy, now the issue is probably more about access. You know, if people are seeing that it's safe, they've seen their friends and family receive the vaccine. But now there's a, still a huge discrepancy in being able to get to the vaccine. There's, you know, transportation issues. There are issues with apps, issues with being mostly in English, issues with having an appointment that coincides with your job. So we're working to try to, um, to fix that. But certainly there have been concerns about, you know, the speed at which it was developed. And you have to understand, like, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of, you know, the government that was, it's not just Tuskegee, it's everything we've talked about today. You know, these continued interactions that erode trust. And so now to say, trust us when we've developed the vaccine in five minutes, no, it's going to be fine. 
you can understand some hesitancy. But we have seen that a lot of researchers of color were involved in making the vaccine. We've seen physicians really look at it and validate it. And now it's out there and we see how effective it is. And the truth is one in 650 black Americans have died from COVID. And the numbers aren't much better for other communities of color. Not one in 650 who get it. One in 650 people appeared it. So there is no like there is no risk greater on, than taking the vaccine than not taking the vaccine. So we have to do this, but we have to acknowledge the hesitancy and partner with the local communities. So that's what we've been doing. Yeah. And what I really, as a woman of color who works at Providence, one of the things that I'm really proud of is that we've actually taken that look because it's not the people of color's problem that right. healthcare has not always been fair and kind and equitable. So I'm so glad that, you know, this organization is willing to look itself in the face and say, okay, we understand why you might not trust, but now let's get out here and let's get information to you and let's build that trust mm -hmm. in the community. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna end by asking you, what does the future of healthcare look like in your mind? And I'm really talking about what what it can be because i mean yeah. sometimes but sometimes we're not quite there yet but what do you think it can be what fact what tactics can our listeners bring back to their communities to minimize these disparities and build upon the work that we're that you just talked about that we're trying to do here so first i want to acknowledge that we couldn't be doing this work, I don't think, without leadership like Dr. Rhonda Meadows at the very top. I mean, Dr. Meadows reports directly to Dr. Hockman, and she has been stalwart. She's like, this is what we're doing. She is not messing around. She's not taking you know, no for an answer. This is what's going to be done. And she has been relentless and vulnerable and just an extraordinary national leader in this space. So for, without her providing that space, we couldn't even be having this conversation. So I wanna thank her for that. In terms of the future, you know, I hope for, and I'm gonna plan for and work for um, healthcare that's more, much more personalized, um, where caregivers reflect the communities that they seek to serve, and that the care delivered is culturally competent and relevant, where if someone in a wheelchair approaches one of our facilities, they don't spend 30 minutes or an hour wondering how they're really gonna get, once past the ramp, fine, but everything else once they're there, can they transfer to the to, to things easily? Um, are, are is information at you know a, a level, physical level, where they can see it without having to ask for help? Are, 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 is our information translated in the languages that our communities need to see it? So I anticipate a future, a future of healthcare where all of that is more personalized, where we've made investments in social determinants upstream so that we're not having to deal with amputations from diabetes. We're dealing with diabetes by having healthy food available to everyone. Um, I, I really encourage our listeners to see something, say something, and do something. Like, we should be as upset about what, what's happening in the healthcare system and what's not happening as we are about anything. Like, you know, this truly is going to determine the future of many of our groups and many of our families and friends. And we need to know, we need to take responsibility for it. And we need to 
to be loud about it. <laughs> and we need to keep working at it until we see measurable data-driven progress. Um, and we don't hear stories that we've heard about of just people dying because they were not trust they they weren't trusted about their own bodies and because they didn't trust the healthcare system that's let them down. Agreed. What a vision for the future. I also wanted to echo because I really feel um, blessed to be led by somebody like Dr. Meadows. And I am a big LinkedIn user. And so I saw on LinkedIn that she was named one of the 2021 modern healthcare top women leaders. And so I think that that also yep. is the kind are the kinds of folks or she is the kind of person who's leading this, you know, this, I guess yeah. I would say campaign for Providence. And I mean, I know you're proud and I'm proud too that that's yeah. happening. Um, any final words, anything you just feel compelled that you want to say? Oh, I love Beverly Murray. I would say, <laughs> I love Vicki, who's a son. You know, what I've, you know, I, I said before how happy I am to be at Providence. And I will say, you know, there's a lot in the news about a lot of things around, you know, Catholic healthcare and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And I will say as a woman and as a very progressive woman, um, taken as a whole, I can't think of a better place to be a woman and to work um, in my career than at Providence. I, this is the place that I feel the most seen, the most given the most opportunities. And even in working to change things from the inside out, there's a platform for it. There's a radio station talking about this stuff, right? Like, so I want, I want that message. I wish that message could be out there louder is there's no one more left than me. I'm so far left. I'm almost wrapped around itself, but this is a place I choose to build a career because as a whole, it's where women can be successful. We see that going back from the sisters. We were founded by women, revolutionary women, right? And now we're carrying that. We don't look like they did, but we carry that same spirit of we're going to make change and we're going to make right by our communities the way they exist now. So I just appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, Beverly. I thank you for all that you're doing. I wish I could hug you. <laughs> you are so, I mean, you are so exciting to me, but I want to end with what you just said. I often tell people this about Providence. It is so good to be at a place where you're celebrated just yep. rather than just being merely tolerated. And so that is what, I, you know, what gets me up and gets me excited about coming into work each day. Thank you, Kenya, for joining us today on Culture of Health and to everyone for listening. We invite all Providence caregivers to join the SoCal Diversity and Inclusion Channel on our newest Providence platform, In Our Circle. You can stay up to date on all Providence events, partnerships, strategies, and educational topics around healthcare disparities. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us today on Culture of Health from Providence. We look forward to continuing this important discussion on healthcare in today's changing culture and future episodes. Make sure to listen to future podcasts on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening.